We're reading in 2 Samuel 7, 1 through 17. Hear the word of the Lord. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth, and I will provide a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so they can have a home of their own, and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore, as they did at the beginning, and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish, establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him. As I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. Hear the word of the Lord. Good morning. Oh, you've got your coffee now. Crystal is so good to have. Whoa. Oh, no. <laughs> got it. Got it. Um, sorry about that. Uh, so good to have you guys here. So good. Um, and Chris, great to have you leading us. I'm actually not sure why they gave you that new, new role. You can't sing a lick. You know, it's kind of weird that they'd do that, but um, I guess you're theologically sound, so they've allowed you to do that. Um, but I love, I love having you guys here. Um, then we, there, I think there's a line in that song that you taught us about God being on the move. And I think when, when I am with you guys, I always come away with a sense like, oh, I, I sometimes forget. God's on the move. God is at work. He's, you know, I gotta just get caught up in my own little life. And, and you guys remind me that God is, is on the move. And so it's beautiful to have you here and to inspire us with that. So thank you for that. Well, we're right in the, in the thick of this series, and uh, we're looking at the, the King, uh, Jesus, all summer long, 
and we're, we're trying to understand who he is and what he has done for us. And we're doing that by looking at the Old Testament story. We're looking at different themes and narratives and stories and characters from the Old Testament and tracing them through the story and then seeing how Jesus is the beautiful fulfillment of all of that. And the goal is to come to a better understanding and appreciation of Jesus, not just in our minds, but in our hearts. So last week we looked at Jesus as our great high priest. We looked at the high priest's role in the Old Testament and saw how Jesus beautifully fulfills that. And today we look at Jesus as our messianic king. And we'll look at the story of the kings of Israel, uh, the promises God made, the plans he had for the kings, and then how Jesus, of course, is the ultimate fulfillment as our great king. And I want to end by asking the question, what does it mean to live daily with Jesus as our king? So we'll walk through the store and then we'll come with and say, what does that actually look like? What does it mean for Jesus to be our king? And I was, I was thinking this week, you know, we're kind of at a disadvantage when it comes to kings and queens because we don't have any experience, no direct experience of that. We live in a democracy. Our experience is actually declaring independence from the crown, right? Um, so I was just trying to think for myself, my only experience of kings and queens comes from movies and comes from books. And as I thought of those stories, I would say about 50% of them are, are positive images of a king and 50% are images of these really bad and wicked kings. There's two images that immediately came to my mind given how old I am and my history of movies. Uh, the first was this. Here's a bad king. Remember that guy from uh, Braveheart? That is King Edward I. Here's a guy who sat behind his crown. He let his armies fight for him. He wanted power. Uh, he did not care about his people or his soldiers one lick. Uh, and then, of course, you know where I'm going next. Uh, the good king image that I have is this guy right here. Uh, Aragorn, right? Uh, Strider. He is a man of the people, right? He fights right alongside. He's out leading the armies. Uh, he's one of the people. He is brave. He's courageous. He's humble. He doesn't assert his authority unless it is to defend others. And so you have these different images of kings, but in the, in the most basic sense, a king's role is to protect, right? To provide, to lead the people. The people's role is to trust in the king, to give their allegiance, to give their obedience to the king. And so we're going to look at, okay, what does that mean for Jesus to be our king? And I had uh, my mom read 2 Samuel 7, which is the most important passage in the Old Testament about kings. It is known as the Davidic covenant, the covenant that God makes with King David. And so we're going to look at that briefly. But before we do, I'm going to just give you a journey through the story of kings, all right? So here we go. Get ready. So as you know, uh, God brought the people out of slavery in Egypt, right? Through Moses, they came out into the wilderness at Mount Sinai. There God entered a covenant with his people where he said, you will be my people and I will be your God. He gave them moral commandments to live by, summarized in the Ten Commandments. He gave them the sacrificial system of the tabernacle and the priests and the uh, animal sacrifices we looked at last week. And then they wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. And then through the leadership of Joshua, finally they crossed over the Jordan River and entered into the promised land and began to defeat the nations there. They set up uh, different territories according to their tribes. And for about, uh, about 400 years, through the period of the judges, they lived as this confederation of 12 tribes. They were not centrally organized, but they had local leaders and rulers. They started to kick out the, the 
other nations, and they start to enter into a time of relative peace. And then the people wanted some stability. So they were finally established in the land. And uh, they, they, uh, uh, Samuel at the time was the, was the leader and the prophet at the time. And the people had a request. And this was their request. They said, uh, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. They didn't have a king. When they thought about a king, they thought all the good things that the king would give to them. That's how they thought of it. Okay? The king will give us a sense of legitimacy. We'll be like the other nations. We don't like being different. Of course, God wanted them to be different. But they said, no, we, wanna, we, want, we want to be like all the other nations. Uh, we want a king to give us victory in our battles. We, we want a king that we can see. Trying to follow this God that you can't see. He wants to be our king. But it's really nice to have a king you can actually look at and see. And he's got armor on and he fights for us. They were thinking of all the ways that the king would give them things that they didn't have. So Samuel heard this request, uh, and he talked to God, and Samuel was grieved by this request, and God was too. And God says to Samuel, it's okay, give them a king. Just so you know, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me as king. I wanted to be their king. I wanted to be their God and king, but they want some, a king that they can touch and see. And so give them a king. Yield to this request. And God basically says this, you may have a king, this is in 1 Samuel 8, but just so you know, he warns them, your king will take, take, take. If I were to read you to the passage, literally six times, God says, take. He's going to take your sons. The king will take your sons and make them soldiers. He'll take your daughters and make them cooks and servants. Uh, He'll take your flocks. He'll take your fields. He'll take your wine. He'll take your money. He's going to take from you. He's going to take taxes from you. So just so you know, he'll take, take, take. And it ends up with God saying, and he will make you his servants. You will become his servants. And the people hear that warning and they say, no, we want a king. (laughs) and so god gives them a king and their first king is who king saul right and from a human standpoint saul is the quintessential king okay physically he's literally head and shoulders above the next guy he's imposing he's strong physically he's the king you would want Uh, but his heart is not all that god would have wanted and he doesn't obey god he doesn't submit to god he doesn't follow god and so god removes him Uh, from being king. But before he does that, he sends Samuel uh, to a town uh, called Bethlehem. Uh, He sends Samuel, I've got another king. I'm going to choose a king after my own heart this time, not Saul, but another king. So he sends him to Bethlehem to a man named Jesse. And Jesse has eight sons. And God says, go to Jesse's house, and I have chosen a, a king from Jesse's sons. So Samuel uh, goes and sees the firstborn son, and he's tall. You can see him over on the right, um, right next to Jesse. He's pretty tall. Um, they all look pretty small there, but I couldn't fit him in the screen. But he's tall. He's impressive. And, and Samuel says, surely this must be the one that God has chosen for king. And God says this, hey, Samuel, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. I'm interested in a king who have a heart like mine. So don't choose him by physical abilities. They go to the second son. Same thing. Samuel thinks, surely this one. Nope. Third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh. All seven sons. And God says, none of these are the sons. And then um, Samuel says to Jesse, any more, you got any more sons? And uh, Jesse says, well, yeah, I, I got one more. I mean, the youngest one, David. He, but he's, he's off with the sheep. Surely you don't want him. And Samuel says, actually, yeah, I'd like to see him. And so they bring uh, uh, David. 
And he's the youngest son. And, and God says, that's the one. This is, this is the one I've chosen as king. God says, uh, and then verse 13 says, So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. So God chooses this young shepherd boy, David, as king. Now, it'd be years before David actually became king. Okay, Saul remained king for years, and he chases after David, and there's all these adventures that David has. But eventually, uh, Saul um, dies, and David is crowned king. And he conquers the city of Jerusalem and establishes Jerusalem as the capital city. He brings the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, and he's, he becomes king in Jerusalem. He builds a palace for himself in Jerusalem. And all of that leads us to this passage today in 2 Samuel 7. So as I said, hugely significant passage. This is known as the Davidic covenant, this covenant that God makes with David and his offspring. We're not going to look at it in detail. But let's look at verse 2, all right? So David is in Jerusalem. He's got a palace built for himself. And then he says to Nathan the prophet... Well, here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. So uh, David's got this, um, I think, noble idea. He's like, man, I, I built this amazing house, but God, you're still living in this little tent. That doesn't seem fair, me in this nice house of wood and you're in this tent. That doesn't seem fair. Hey, I, I want to build a house for you, God. You deserve a house. Um, you've worked hard for us. You know, you, you're the king. So let me build a house for you. Uh, and, and the whole passage, the way the passage works is um, there's two dynamics you need to know. One is there's a, there's a play on the word house in this passage, okay? And the play is, you'll, we'll read in a second, but David says, I want to build you a house, God. And God's response is, actually, David, I'm going to build you a house, okay? And we'll see how that works in a second. The other dynamic is that God wants to flip the dynamic in the, in the, in the relationship a little bit. David is, is coming from this place, I think it's it's... It's right-headed, but he's like, hey, God, you're in need. You need a house. I'm the king now. I've got wealth. Let me build a house for you. And God wants to say, yeah, that's not exactly how this relationship works, David. All right? So let's see, let's see how God kind of switches the relationship. Um, look at verse 6. Here's God's response to David. Uh, verse 6. I haven't dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. He's saying, David, have I ever asked? For a house? Have I ever needed a house? No, I don't need a house. Actually, the whole universe is my house. Um, I don't need a house. Um, verse 8. Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. David, I am not in need. You don't help me. Remember, you are nothing. <laughs> You're this little shepherd. And I took you out of my grace, and I brought you into this amazing place where you're now leading my people. But that's, that's how it works. I did that for you. Uh, verse 9, I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. Right? He is saying, you know what? I don't need anything from you, David, <laughs> but I have decided to bless you. I'm God, and I want to bless you, and I'm going to continue to bless you. But that's how the relationship works. You're in need, and I give to you. You need my blessing, and I bless you. I'm God, and you're a little shepherd boy. And that's great. That's beautiful. It allows me to be God. All right, so then we're going to jump down to uh, 
uh, verse 11, the second half of verse 11. And now we get this play on the word house, all right? And, and really, verse 11 and following, this is the heart of what people know as God's covenant with David. Okay, so really focus in here. Here's what God says. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you, David. And it's a play on the word house. David wants to build a physical house for God. God said, no, no, you're not going to build a house for me. I'm going to build a house for you. But the house that God is talking about is I'm going to build a dynasty, not a physical house, but I will build a dynasty, a line of descendants, okay? So today in England, we refer to the house of Windsor, right? We don't mean a physical structure. We mean the the descendants, the line, the lineage, the dynasty. So God says, I'm going to build a dynasty for you. And let me just read you these verses, verse 12 through 16. This is the heart of the covenant. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as, that I, took, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. That is the covenant. All right, and what you can what you see here is, is um, there are some immediate fulfillments of this promise, and there's some long term fulfillments. In some cases, God is talking about an individual descendant. Sometimes He's just talking about the line of descendants. Right, verse thirteen, um, He is the one who will build a house for my name. That's referring to Solomon. Solomon went on, that's David's son, who went on to build a temple. But as it goes on, I think he's talking about David's house, his line of descendants. And God is saying, your descendants will be kings of Israel. And he says, they will have this unique relationship with me, a relationship of father and son. I will love them the way a father loves a son. When they do wrong, I'm going to discipline them the way a father does. But my love will never be taken from them, and your kingdom will never end. You will always have a king to sit on the throne from your own line, and his throne and his kingdom will never end. That's the promise, right? Make sense? Obviously, we see some, some echoes of Jesus in all of us as the ultimate fulfillment of this, which we'll, we'll look at in just a second. So this is the great promise. And just to kind of put, put our heads around some basic ideas here, so David's line, there's a couple things, a couple titles they'll be known as. First, of course, um, they're going to be kings. They will be the leaders, the rulers of Israel. Second, um, they will be known as the sons of God. We saw that he'll be my son. I'll be his father. Okay. We already learned that Israel as a nation was referred to as God's firstborn son. Now the king is the son of God. He, he's an embodiment of Israel. He has a special, unique relationship with God as God's son. Um, Of course, the other title is the Messiahs of Israel. The word Messiah means anointed. Very good. Yes, anointed, right? David was anointed with oil, and that's what the word Messiah means. It's anointed. The kings would be God's anointed ones. Uh, They're set apart. To be anointed is to be set apart for a particular task, to be given God's authority to execute that task, all right? And just to round this out a little bit more, God is very clear about what he wants in terms of the character, the inner character of his kings. Even way back in Deuteronomy, Moses predicted that 
Israel would have kings. And he said this, God said this through Moses, the king must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself. He must not take multiple wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. And then this is the law that God gave at Sinai. He's to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law. And he's to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord as God and not consider himself, this is key, better than his brothers and turn from the law to the right or to the left. God is saying, I don't want the king to be like a superior Israelite. No, the king is to be a model Israelite. He's to be one with the people. He's no better than anybody else. And he's to live humbly, knowing he's just like anybody else. He's to lead, not through power, but by example. Let me give you one psalm, Psalm 72. A lot of psalms talk about the character of the king. Endow the king with your justice, O God, the royal son, you see all this language echoed, with your righteousness. Now look at the character of the king that God wants. He will judge your people in righteousness, for he will deliver the needy who cry out, the afflicted who have no one to help. He will rescue them from oppression and violence, for precious is their blood in his sight. The king will be a king who exercises his power on behalf of the poor and the needy and the vulnerable. He'll protect them. May his name endure forever. And then listen to this. All nations will be blessed through him and they will call him blessed. Now, what covenant does that sound like? Covenant with Abraham, right? God said, you will bless all the nations. So this was God's role and purpose for the king. He'd be a model Israelite. He would, he would use his power on behalf of the poor and the needy and the vulnerable. And through him, not only Israel, but all the nations would be blessed. Right? So thus begins the line of kings, starting with David and then his son Solomon. We know these two reigns as kind of a golden age in Israel. This is a time of peace and prosperity. But if you read the rest of the story, you see that it doesn't end that way, um, as many of you know. So Solomon's son Rehoboam, he starts taking from the people. He takes heavy taxes from the people, and they don't like this. And so another guy's raised up named Jeroboam, not related, just similar names. And uh, they get in, engaged in a battle, and, and the country of Israel uh, has a civil war right after Solomon. Civil war, and it splits in two with the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, each with their own line of kings. So I'm only giving you several ge- generations, whoops, several generations of kings. So already there's a civil war, and the nation God's people are split. And if you were just to, I just looked at like, how do these kings do in God's sight? What's God's approval of each of these kids, uh, kings? I would say David and Solomon generally get thumbs up from God, okay? Obviously, they both made mistakes, but looking back, God would say, yes, a good king. If you look at the southern kingdom, this is actually through David's line on the right-hand side. First two guys are pretty bad. Second two guys are pretty good. And that's more or less how it goes, about 50-50 in the southern kingdom. Uh, if you look at the left side, the northern kingdom, all, one, all four of these guys get thumbs down from God. All right? Um, So all that to say, uh, the human kings never lived up to this this, uh, picture that God had for the kings. And rather than give of themselves to the people, what they did is exactly what God warned the people they would do. They take, take, take. They took taxes. They took power for themselves. They took wealth for themselves. They took other gods uh, and worshiped them. They took other wives and led their hearts led astray. So they do not obey God. Hundreds of years go by, and you know the story. Because of that, God brings in four nations who came and conquered Israel, carried the people off into exile in Babylon. They're back in Babylon. But God raises up Ezekiel, and through him, he makes a a prophecy about a new king who will come. He says, I will bring you back into the land, and my servant David, 
He'll lead you again. He will tend you, right? He's a shepherd. He will tend you and be your shepherd. He will be your prince forever. So there's the promise of a coming one in the line of David who will once again rule and tend the flock of God. And God brings them back into the land uh, and they reestablish the city walls. They reestablish the temple, but no king sits on the throne. And then you have about 400 years of silence. It's 400 years before Jesus. There's not much prophetic activity and no kings. And now the people are living under Roman occupation and wondering, when is this coming one going to come? This son of God, this anointed one who will come and deliver us from our enemies. All right? Familiar to many of you. But that sets up the story of the New Testament. So we turn to the New Testament. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to put things on the slide. That leads us to Jesus. And let's just see how a few of these themes are fulfilled in Jesus. And then I'll give you a little takeaway for the day. So the birth narrative of Jesus, like when you read Luke's gospel especially, and we hear about the birth and the pregnancy of Mary and the birth of Jesus, it is just filled with language that echoes these promises that God made to David. So let me give you a couple examples. The angel Gabriel comes to Mary, right? And says this to her, you will be with child and give birth to a son. You're to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son. We've seen that language of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house. There's that word again of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. That is the Davidic covenant right there. God, the angel Gabriel saying this covenant is going to be filled, fulfilled in your son. Or how about Zechariah and Elizabeth? You know, they have John the Baptist and uh, Zechariah uh, has a great uh, song that goes like this. Praise be the God of Israel, for he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days, right? And when Jesus is born, when Jesus begins his ministry, his public ministry, he enters this ministry with the language of king and kingdom on his lips, right? Here's the message. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for what? The kingdom of heaven is, is at hand, is near. The king is here and the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, what's interesting, there's a really interesting dynamic in the Gospels. Having said all of that, we're, we're, we're expecting the king. We're looking for the king, and we're being told this is the king. Uh, when it comes to identifying as the Messiah, Jesus absolutely downplays that throughout his ministry, Av- completely avoids that label, and wants to, wants to keep people quiet when they try to call him that. So his first miracle in Luke's Gospel is casting out a demon, and the demon says this, ha! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And, God, and Jesus says, be quiet. <laughs> Don't tell anybody, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. And he exercises the demon. Very next scene. When the sun was setting, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness, and he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people shouting, you are the Son of God. But Jesus rebuked them. It would not allow, allow them to speak. Why? Because they knew he was the Messiah. <laughs> Shh, don't tell anybody, okay? Midway through his ministry, he asks his disciples, "Uh, who do you say that I am? Who do you think I am? Peter responds accurately, you are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. 
And then right after that, it says, then Jesus warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. (laughs) So what's going on there? We're being told this is clearly the Messiah, and Jesus is saying, I don't want anybody to know that I'm the Messiah. (laughs) I think what's going on is the, the, the label Messiah is absolutely accurate. He is the Messiah. But that label is also very misleading given the people's expectations in that day. Right? They are waiting for this political, military ruler who will come and defeat the Romans, establish an earthly throne, and make Israel the leading world power again. There's, Jesus walks into a, a scenario that is so heightened politically. And his way of being Messiah is going to be very different than that. And so that label, while true, is, is utterly misleading. It will lead people down a wrong path of understanding who he is and what he has come to do. And my point in saying all of that is this, okay? He is absolutely Messiah. He is absolutely the king. And like every king, he has come to protect and to lead and to fend and provide for his people. But when Jesus comes onto the scene as king, he looks around and he discerns who the real enemy is. And the real enemy is not Rome. It is not the economic exploitation, though those are hard things at the time. He recognizes the real enemy is, is the very hearts of the people themselves. It's the sin that is in the hearts of God's people. And it's the religion of the day that is not going to do anything to deal with the fundamental problems of sin. It is the enemy of Satan and, and the bondage that, that human beings are in under his control. Ultimately, the enemy is God's own justice and God's justice towards human sin. And so Jesus, as king, sees All of that. And he wants to be a very different kind of king. Yes, he will protect and fight and defend. But he's going to do that through serving. He's going to do that through leading people in the truth. For for, uh, by giving of himself. By defeating Satan and, and freeing people from the bondage of Satan. And all this, he is going to give, give, give. He's going to give of himself in a hundred and thousand different ways, endlessly giving him. So he's not going to be the kind of king who takes power and authority for himself, but he's going to exercise his authority and give it away on behalf of the poor and the needy and the sinful. And then, of course, ultimately we know what happens at his death. He fully gives himself away because, again, he discerns who the real enemy is. It is sin. It is our own broken and wicked hearts. It is Satan in the control he has. It is death itself. And so he comes to defeat our ultimate enemy. And he does that through the giving of his own life on the cross as a sacrifice for our sin. I was thinking this week, you know, it's so interesting that the, that the leaders actually put on the cross this title, Jesus, King of the Jews. And I think people probably read it ironically in the moment. But of course, this is what he is. But what a, what a perfect picture of the kind of king Jesus is. The king who comes not to take from the people, but the king who comes to give of himself for the people, to defeat their ultimate enemies. Philippians 2, although he was God, right? He didn't consider equality with God with something to grasp. He made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, Right? First Samuel, God warned the people, you get a king, you will become his servants. 
He will take from you and you'll become his servants. This is the king who completely reverses that. He gives and gives and this king becomes our servant. And God the Father sees this king and he says, yes, there is a man after my own heart. That is the king I want. And so Philippians 2 goes on to say this. Therefore, God the Father, in light of who Jesus is, highly exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. After death, he raised up and he is seated on a throne. He now is on a throne in heaven, ruling from heaven. The promise to David has been realized in Jesus, our heavenly king. And despite all appearances on earth, now all authority in heaven on earth has been given to this man. The king, the son of God. He has all authority over every president, every king, over every nation, over every company, over every organization, over every person. Despite all appearances, he has authority. It's his. He's king of the world. God's promise to David is fulfilled in him. Of course, one day he will return. And what the passage is saying, and one day everybody's going to acknowledge that authority. Every single creature will bow, whether they want to or not. Okay? Everyone's going to recognize, oh my goodness, you really are king. You have all authority. But what a king he is. The kind of king who gives and gives and gives. All right, I know that's a long story. But let me leave you with this. I want to ask the question, okay, in light of all of that, Jesus as our king, what does it actually mean to live daily with Jesus as our king? What What does that actually look like? Let me just go back to what I said at the beginning. A king's role is to protect, defend, to provide and lead the people. You know what the people's role is? It's to trust and to give their allegiance and their obedience to the king. That's how the relationship works. And so that's what I want to say today. I want to leave you with that idea. What it means to live with Jesus as king. To say, Jesus, I surrender my life to you. You take control. I offer you my allegiance. I bow the knee of my heart and my life to you. It's yours. Let me just put this negatively for a second, and then I'll put it positively, okay? Uh, Negatively, let me say this. Um, We don't like giving up control to other kings, okay? The human heart, my heart, your heart, does not like to give up control to another king. I was thinking of what the uh, Israelites said originally, right? We want a human king. We reject God as king. We want a human king. You know what I think we say today in our culture? Uh, We say this. uh, We want to be our own king, (laughs) right? Um, that's what the culture is. No, no, we want to be our own king. And so if we're Christians, we say, we, we like the idea of, of having a savior who gets us to heaven. I love that part. Um, but I want to keep control of my life, like in the practical things, okay? Like when it comes to what I do actually do with my money or how I think about and engage in sexuality or um, what I do with my time or what sorts of things I watch or what actually comes out of my mouth, Um, how I engage myself at work and business. When it comes to those things, um, you know what the value of the culture is? It's maximum personal freedom and autonomy. (laughs) We want that. That's what we want. Jesus, you're my savior, and I'd like to maintain the prerogative to live my life the way I want to live it. Right? That's what so many people do. And it's rooted in fear. The fear is this. If I were to submit to you, like in these very practical ways. If I were to give up control, I'm afraid. You know what I'm afraid you're going to do? You're going to take, take, take. 
You're going to take my money. You're going to take my comforts. You're going to take my freedom. You're going to take my fun. You're going to take my pleasures. You're going to take my happiness. If I give these things, that's why I don't want to give them to him. I'm afraid that you're going to take. And so we make this deal, not, you know, in our hearts. It's this. Uh, I'll believe in you for salvation, and I'll continue to live my life. All right? And I just want to remind us all um, that that deal is not an offer that Jesus makes. Okay? And when it comes to biblical Christianity, that offer is not actually on the table, even if we think it is. It's not on the table. Jesus says, no, 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 I, I want it all. <laughs> this is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. Uh, Christ's love compels us. Why? Because we're convinced that one died for all, and he died for all. Why? That those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the king who died for them and was raised again. That's actually the offer that Jesus makes us. Now, positively, let me end on a positive note. Um, I'm saying we're, we're called to surrender and give our obedience to this king. But let me just encourage you. It's not the kind of obedience that is like a resentful obedience or a fearful obedience. Like, I guess I got to do this. No, the kind of off obedience we're called to offer is the kind of obedience you give when you completely trust somebody. <laughs> like you say, I trust you. Like if you totally trust someone implicitly in every way, I trust you. Well, yeah, I'll give you my money. Right? I'm, I'll give you my time. I'll, I'll give you how I engage in work. Yeah, why? I trust you. You're trustworthy. It's the obedience of faith. It's not the obedience of fear. No, no, you're trustworthy. I can trust you. So yeah, you can have my stuff. You can have me. And so I just want to end by saying to the fear in every one of our hearts, in my own heart, to speak into that fear and say, we can trust him. <laughs> he is trustworthy. Why? He has this amazing track record. He gives and gives and gives. He has proven that he's utterly committed to our deep and abiding well-being. And he's more than capable of bringing that about. He is committed to our well-being. And so we can trust him. And let me just say, the most beautiful moments in the Christian journey are those moments of surrender to God. Okay? I, I would say this for my own life when I think of friends. Those moments when you're wrestling with God. There's something that you're wanting to hold on to, right? And it's this, it could, be, um, it could be money. It could be how you think about something. It could be some plans you have for your future. It could be some past event that you're holding on to. And, you, and you're wrestling. You don't want to let it go. And then finally, deep in your heart, you realize, I, I'm sick of this. I can't do this. Ah, you know, God, ah, it's yours. Take it. I surrender it to you. Have it. Take my money. Take, you know, my job, take my future, take this past event. It's, I give it to you, you take control. Those are the most beautiful moments in the Christian journey. And of course, to become a Christian is to make that first moment of, I give you my life. I'm sick of running this on my own. And then in all these practical ways, when we hand things over, it is such a challenging, painful, hard, but beautiful thing. And it's so beautiful to watch people come to that place of total surrender and then watch Jesus the King enter and say, now you've given me control. And to watch him just do stuff that is surprising, unexpected, sometimes challenging, but beautiful and good. And he gives and gives and gives. He gives new life. He gives freedom. He gives new joy. And that's what he does. So that's the encouragement is to 
surrender ourselves, and not just in the abstract, but in the practical ways, to Jesus, our King. So I'm going to have Mark come on up, and he's going to lead us in a prayer. I realize I've gone pretty long. Sorry for that, but it's just too much to get through. It's lovely. And he's, just, he's going to walk us through just surrendering ourselves to the King. So I'll, I'll turn it over to you. This morning, uh, we've been considering this really important truth of how do we respond to our king? And, you know, I think the risk, one of the risks for us, all of us, is, um, you know, we encounter truth like this morning uh, or any, maybe any other time, maybe in the word, whether it's a sermon or uh, maybe a time that you have in the word, and that inspiration, that acknowledgement of the importance of that truth is palpable in the moment, but it's fleeting. And uh, we can spend this time here and we can end this service and we can go out there and we can hang out with our friends and we can get in our cars and we can go home and get on with our lives. And all that has happened and we've heard can be fleeting. So we, we want to fight against that. We want to fight against that every, every time we encounter the word. We want to fight against that every time we come uh, and gather together as a, as a church. And James uh, speaks into this. He says, um, doing that is like walking up to a mirror, seeing yourself, acknowledging this is me, and walking away and forgetting we don't want to do that. And so let's just take some time for ourselves in the context of prayer to consider how we should respond to the fact that God is indeed our king. So let's bow together and pray. Father, we, we acknowledge it's true. Um, you you are our king, king of kings, lord of, of lords. You reign over all the earth. Nothing exceeds your power. Nothing is too great for you to do. Nothing is too good for you to give. Infinite is your might. Boundless is your love. Limitless is your grace. There is no more benevolent an advocate than you. But Lord, we are often slow to believe it, to really believe it. A belief that goes beyond just intellectual assent, but a belief that, that proves itself in trust, wholehearted trust, surrendering our, our will and our tendency to put ourselves on the throne instead of you. 
Have mercy on us, Lord. And Lord, if we don't already know, reveal to us right now where we need to surrender to you. Where we need to give over control to you. What keeps us holding on so tight to our own way? What do we fear in letting go? Lord, we know that the only way we can ever get to the point of loosening our grip is by trusting you. Where do we need to trust you now? Maybe it's our future or our plans. children or our finances maybe it's our health whatever it is Lord please replace our our tendency to take matters into our own hands apart from you and contrary to your will. And help us to cast our worries and our fears onto you with this deep, abiding, trusting surrender. Help us to understand what it looks like to have an obedience of faith. Lord, we need you. We need you in this every step of the way to help us with this, Lord. Help us. Lord, I thank you so much for for who you are, a God who is, is faithful and abounding in mercy and love. A love that has been proven by the sacrifice of your son, Jesus that brings a sweet reconciliation and comprehensive forgiveness. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.